Hello, my name is Michelle Yonachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, Conversations with Writers Exploring What's Informed Their Books and Their Lives Around Themes of Movement, Memory, Sense of Place, Borders, Identity, Belonging, and Home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent. I'm joined by the writer Frances Stoner Saunders to discuss her book, The Suitcase, Six Attempts to Cross a Border. It's a family memoir reflecting on her father's life. He was exiled from Romania during World War II onto Turkey, Egypt, then the UK. The Suitcase won the Penn Ackley Prize last year. Francis's previous books include Who Paid the Piper, the CIA and the Cultural Cold War, also Hawkwood, Diabolical Englishman, about a fiercely successful 14th century mercenary, John Hawkwood, and The Woman Who Shot Mussolini, the moving story of an attempt to assassinate the Italian fascist dictator. Francis, welcome to The Wandering Book Collector. Thank you very much. Very pleased to be with you. And to the suitcase, the title of your latest book and a possession of your late father, you write, my hope is that if I open it, the suitcase may offer a way across a border to meet my father who in life was unknowable to me. A gap in the wall, a hole in the wire will do. Then maybe I could restore something. What? From the dislocation. Did you also hope that the writing of this book would offer a way to restore something to bring you closer to your father? I have to be honest about my early intentions here, which was that I, I wanted to kind of go back into the past in order to just take what I needed and then get out of there. I didn't really want to spend much time on this. And of course, uh, I was, you know, I was very naive. I think if you, if you start digging away uh, through the kind of archaeology of family life and family memories, then you you find it very hard to extricate yourself because, of course, it's very much a part of you. And I knew that when I started, but I didn't really want to be as a, sort of immersive <laughs> as I was. I thought I could just crack this out in, you know, 12 months and on we go. But it's taken me, it's taken me years, actually, including the years where sort of unconsciously I was thinking about it. You know, I've been working on borders as a subject and what they mean to us and how they hold us back, but also hold us in in a comfortable way, a consolable way. I, uh, you know, that's something I've been kind of slightly obsessed uh, by in the last 10, 15 years. But I entered, I entered the arena feeling very, very self-conscious and sort of worried about it. So I, I'm not sure what I was looking for, but I certainly found something of my father and understood him better as a result through very kind of, um, really through fragments of his life and things that had been left behind. I don't, I don't think you can ever really succeed in that. It's, it's I mean, in some kind of Freudian way, you know, it's like you, it's just a, it's just a part of, of your life that you have to deal with and move on. It's impossible to drive forward if you're just only looking in the rearview mirror, I think. It's, it's living your life and then, and, you know, and then not being pulled back too much. I mean, I, I feel that reading it. I feel this sense of someone who's very meticulous about their research looking at the past, but shunning it somehow too. Mm. I, felt, I felt like, I don't know, if I, you know, I read lots of books about sort of memoir and going back into family history and stuff, and it's all kind of, 
I don't know, it's almost celebratory. For me, it was, it felt like a sort of, um, in a sense, a continuation of mourning and grieving uh, for my father, who I didn't really know. Um, and it's very hard, I think, to mourn someone that you, who is not knowable. So maybe it was, so for me, it was a sort of challenge, but it was also kind of a, um, slightly aggressive thing. I just wanted the past to leave me alone. So I thought, well, if I had some kind of dialogue with it, then after that, I can just be free. And, I, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case. But I've understood a lot more about how how dangerous it is to, to stay in the past for too long and forget what your your own life is and where you might be going. But also, it's impossible not to understand or to try to understand your past because, you know, the me memories is, is, is are a way of telling you who you are. I mean, without stories, we're, we're nothing. We're nobody. Well, I, that reminds me of the, a quote from the book on memory. You wrote, how casually we take up the dictum that those who forget history are condemned to repeat it without considering whether the opposite may be true, that we are doomed to repeat the errors of the past precisely because we can't accept that it's past. Although you follow that up by saying forgetting is not an option. And I did want to ask you if you think we should be more selective about choosing what we remember. Um, if only we had that power, you know? I mean, I think in, in personal uh, relations, possibly you can, you work hard on, taking what might enrich you or, or at least educate you um, and then try to make your own life despite that in a kind of communal sense of memory it's very hard I mean there are very uh, serious situations that are happening in our in our in the world at the moment which have a lot to do with the uh, impossibility of forgetting the past this totally this continual sort of revenance of of the ghosts of the past coming back and telling us what to do to fight for this homeland for example to to hold this border for example all of these uh this mortmain i mean mortmain like a sort of mortgage but like you know this this heavy hand on your shoulder on our shoulders and to in some way satisfy the dead and of course the dead should stay dead but they're not they're very alive and very lively in the context of, of, let's say, a place like Ukraine, where I've just been visiting, and, and the sort of shatter zones around that country. It's the same, I think, in your in your own life. You, you, you have, you know, an amnesia might be useful. I mean, my father had Alzheimer's. This is sort of the irony in a way. He escaped by forgetting everything. And in a way, although it was sort of really tragic to, to see him as a kind of sort of kernel of what he had been, an empty sort of husk, but I sort of thought there were times when he, when I was with him during his last sort of um, months of Alzheimer's, thinking, you know, thank, you know, lucky you, you're kind of out of the game now, and I hope you're not suffering. But I had this sort of sense that, you know, it meant that, that me as his daughter and the rest of the family were having to shoulder some of the pain and the grief and the, and the difficulty of him, whilst he has, you know, sort of gone free. I mean, it's a very kind of angry um, child to parent uh, kind of situation, but that's, I mean, I'd be honest about it. And it still hasn't really gone. Yeah. That sort of frustration that, that uh, you know, I mean, who is it? Samuel Butler, I think, the Irish writer, brilliant writer, who said, 
um, all children born at least 25 years after their parents had died. There is no beginning which isn't, which isn't in some way influenced by and to a degree contaminated by a previous beginning. I mean, was there less to lose in a way because of your relationship with him than there might have been when he got Alzheimer's? You know, I think yes and no. Yes, in the sense that, you know, I mean, he, I'd lost him a long time before that. I mean, he just was, you know, he had such kind of... Um, he, had, he held himself really close to his own borders and and, and found great difficulty in, in coming through those borders to, to make contact with others. And that was to do with... It was a sort of pain barrier for him. I mean, his experiences of dislocation and just simply the fear of being... You know, a, a young boy and then a, a, a sort of early adult spending his life moving from one place to the other with, with huge jeopardy in each move and and a separation from his father and from everything that he knew as a child. All of these things left him with a very kind of hyphenated identity, moving from different languages into yet another language because it was safer to speak uh, English rather than German. Or, or to speak a bit of French rather than Romanian, all these things. Um, he was a kind of an outsider, but in his own very particular kind of um, well, well-defended little citadel. And so it was a very high wall to kind of climb to, to, to really get to see him and understand him. And I think probably, yeah, that frustration stayed with me for a long time. And then... As an adult, for a very long time, I just thought this isn't, you know, this is, this is not something I have to deal with. He's gone. It's not my problem. And then this Richard suitcase appears from nowhere um, with stuff of his in it, as far as I was told. And uh, then suddenly you have, you know, material object that is hard to to push away and to deny. So that was, you know, this was this book was really a long, long time in coming. And it seems ridiculous when I think of it now that I hadn't been conscious in all of the work I was doing on borders, refugees and identity that I had never locked it into my own family. But but that's honestly true. I mean, I had, it was completely subliminated and then it kind of, it, it, it's bobbed to the surface when this suitcase arrived. How has your father's life of, of multiple homes and, and, and these radical shifts in geography, do you think it also affected your sense of belonging or, or your notion of home? Yeah, in good ways and bad ways. And in a good way, I think, you know, having your own space is incredibly important and having a home as a shelter and a, as a private sort of realm which can keep you uh, centred when... The public realm can be very challenging and confusing. Yeah, I think it's very important. For me, home is very important. Um, it's also the case that um, it can be the opposite, that the home can become a bit of a prison and and you, you, you can live a sort of exclusive life within that structure and lose kind of contact, if you like, with... Uh, things outside and beyond your own border. I mean, let's face it, you know, one of the first borders you encounter every single day is when you leave your apartment or your house and you open a door and shut the door, move from the private me to the public me and and other people. 
And in fact, throughout the day, you're moving in, in, across borders the whole time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I'm ambiguous about that. I, I think, you know, I've moved quite a lot. I mean, I've lived in other countries. But I guess as I get older, yes, I do. I do care more for the fact that I can rely on being able to cross my own threshold and come back to my home. I, I wish I wish in a way that it that it weren't so important, but I think it is. I was also interested, Francis, to, to read the connection that you did feel um, to Romania. There was a visit that you made, I think you must have only been about mm. 11, if my maths was correct, in 1977, when you visited a great aunt and some relatives there. And you wrote that you loved being with them and you felt at home. And it sounded very intense to me. So I guess the second question to, you know, where was home? And it sounds like that is an important concept, but also where you have felt most at home. You know, funny enough, you're so right. That trip to Romania when I was 11 was, was um, I don't think what, what made it home was, was one, they had a huge sense of humour. My father was really not very funny. We found it hard to be funny. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't accuse him of anything, but I love, humor and I love getting energy from other people that's the thing that I most and they were so engaging and so funny and they had this kind of very subversive sense of humor because you had to develop that in a place like Romania under Ceausescu in the 70s I mean it had, it had moved from what had been my father's birthplace which was you know the Paris of the East and then it was called you know derogatorily and racistly but anyway at the time it was called the Ethiopia of the East it was unbelievably poor run-down shithole, if I'm allowed to say that. Yeah. And they had just these amazing kind of um, ways of dealing with it and and not allowing themselves to be afraid anymore. Although there was fear in their lives, but they just, they'd had so much, they just sort of developed some kind of um, strategy where it was nothing in a way could be taken seriously except for family and home. That was clear, and it was multi-generational, and they all lived together. And, you know, my parents by then had, had, had split up, and everything was much more sort of, you know, in different sort of silos or containers. You know, your daddy lived there, and mommy lived there, and you live here, and so-and-so there, and, and granny lives somewhere else. And I thought, well, this is great. People can live together. And, you know, I'm sure they had arguments and stuff. It was a very pressured life about various things. But they also laughed a lot. No, it was great. I absolutely loved it. And it was an adventure to be in a, in a country that was completely um, alien to the way we were living in London in 1977. So that gave me a sense of, you know, w wishing to discover stuff. I went back to Romania during the... As soon as the, the Romanian revolution started, I got on a truck in the middle of London with people I'd never met before and said, will you take me to Romania? Because I'd gone to... They were at the centre where they were taking clothes and food out and i you know went all the way across europe got to romania and spent 14 days there going all over the place and finally ended up in bucharest so this is you know the beginning of january 1990 when all of these regimes were falling and i called my cousin and i was in the hotel in book i didn't call it before i got to bucharest because i never knew if i would be able to get there it was it was the whole thing the whole country was sort of broken and impossible to I got there and I called her and I said, how are you? And she said, we're on the floor, she said in French. 
She meant literally they'd been high, you know, they'd been flat on the floor because of the snipers and the and the you know the explosions and the, and we spoke for a bit and she said, "You, this is a very clear line. Where are you?" And I said, "I'm in the hotel Intercontinental in Bucharest in this square." And she said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Can you get a taxi and come here?" She hadn't left her flat for you know fourteen days. And we had a wonderful time. And I went back to the family house and spent days with them. And again, nothing had been lost of that of that nineteen seventy seven holiday. A sense a sense of coming home. I can't really explain it. I would say that the biggest lesson I learned from the from 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 writing this book is that, and shockingly, I realised that it's possible to be scared of losing loss that i had lived with an idea of loss about my father from when i was very small and particularly through his alzheimer's and then death and then the years afterwards and and then i thought you know this is a very kind of stubborn notion or or i'm clinging to something that and the the opposite might be true it might be that um, it's. It, I got so used to loss that I that I was refusing to let it go, or or to let it go as a kind of system of of living. And you know, I do can't. I do. It's funny. I still remember things that I lost when I was a child. I mean, really unimportant things, little trinkets and things. And so I think what. There was loss. There was clearly loss in my early childhood. I mean, anyone who's got you know divorced parents will understand. Or a parent has perhaps died when they've been very young, or they've lost their home and their family structures, all of those things. But and therefore, maybe you start identifying with it, and you start teaching yourself that loss is a part of your life, and um, and you kind of give it more power over you than it should. Mm. And so then I started getting uh, you know these other sort of memories sometimes in dreams but but often when I was just uh, sitting on a bus or something thinking oh you know I remember that time when you know we were in Romania and we he wanted to find this place called the milk cave which was a you know something that he'd known as a child and it had some weird stalagmites and stuff and we couldn't find it and we couldn't find it and then eventually at the end of the day we could and then we ran down this hill as fast as we could, you know, crying with laughter. And then the next morning, we, none of us could move because our legs were so stiff. And then we laughed about that. And I thought, why have I, why have I put, why have I put those memories in some sort of vault? It's almost like I'd built a border to, to, to stop acknowledging that in order that I could just, you know, I could uh, in some way feed, the, you know, the, the loss syndrome. So that's, I guess for me personally, that's the biggest lesson that that I can get. I can't, I can't retreat. I can't do anything about the fact that really was lost. But I can be a little bit less uh, neurotic about what I might lose now. I mean, I hope, I hope, I feel I'm, I'm, you know, a bit lighter in that sense. And that, you know, if it's gone, it's gone. If it's gone, it's gone. It's okay. It doesn't actually matter in the scheme of things. So this huge sense of self awareness, Francis. Um, no, I do. You know, I don't. I mean, it can't. It comes in. I mean, I'm 57, and if I'm lucky, if I get one little tiny atom of self awareness every decade, then I'd be lucky. And in some way, 
writing books does help with that, even if they've got nothing to do with your personal life. I mean, they are all to do with your personal life, and at least in the way you choose your subjects and the way in which you write about them. I'd never written anything so intimate. I had no idea and no intention of being that intimate with myself or with anyone else. But so it's, uh, yeah, it's not something I've done. I don't, I don't, I, I can't take any credit. If I've said something that's sensible or if I've found something that's useful, it's entirely by accident. Well, I was jolted by something you wrote, which was a kind of dear reader call out. And it was when you, you wished you could shout to some people in the book to get out of there, go now. And the line was, I'm sitting in the crow's nest of history and I can see what's hurtling towards them. I'm so haunted by that. It, it felt like at times the book was written by a historian, but at other mm. times written by a woman very entangled and deeply invested. Yeah, the historical context. I am sort of a historian by mistake. I mean, I never started out, but I've got, you know, I have really written books that are historical and, and about his history, but... And with this, I really didn't. I, I thought at the beginning it would just be sort of six rather beautiful, you know, essays on borders. And I was going to do trains, and then I was going to do rivers because you know all these things help you cross border, you know, boats or uh, cars or whatever it was going to be. Different kinds of borders and different ways of, of and then threading in some some you know tiny little sort of bits of family history. And it didn't work like that. It just kind of it just overwhelmed me in a different way. But you you can't I can't really explain what happened to my father and why he was why he was without going back into the history and the place he was in historically because like millions and millions of people in the nineteen late nineteen thirties um, and through the Second World War as with the First World War uh, people were just sitting there you know living their lives and then were suddenly uh, overwhelmed by this tide of history the history of former wars that still had never been settled, um, that overtook, overtook everybody's lives. Uh, and so, I, you know, obviously I was conscious of that and I could read up on that, but when it became so specific to my father and why he and his family had to leave, then, you know, I did some archival research and I found, I found out what was going on and I found out that I knew much more than they could ever have known because I was able to see it from documents that you know, end up in the British archives here, and they're not available for 40 years after the death of anyone involved or of that department or whatever it might be. So I, I had this extraordinary privilege of, and a very sort of frightening job, if you like, of, of um, putting all of this together and then throwing it back into the book as if, you know, I, not I would say in real time, but sometimes I do write in real time because I know almost from these documents, at least, you know, the, the the hours of the day that they left Romania as refugees. They'd left when my father was 10 and his younger brother was, I think, five and his parents were obviously older. And they spent five years on their own personal odyssey. And they and I'd like to say, and then they came back like Odysseus, but they didn't. They, they, there was no you know, really nowhere. They tried, but they couldn't go. And so they then ended up in in England with English with British passports and never having stepped foot on the on on the United Kingdom. So what does that mean as well? You have all of those 
protections from a British passport. You, you can't even speak the language properly. And also I found out what danger my, my grandfather was in because he was working in the oil sector in, in Romania and uh, when the Germans were trying to capture, uh, basically capture Romania as a client state rather than a full invasion, uh, they, they, concentrated, they needed Romanian oil. And so my grandfather was linked to a group of people who were sabotaging oil wells in order to deny the Nazis. And I know that my father knew that in outline, because my uncle told me about that too, but he he had no idea how close his father came to just ending up in some kind of black hole in Romania or or just being killed. So I, I was getting sort of rushes of kind of, you know, adrenalized fear about when I was reading these documents so, but uh, but at least I had a kind of framework to work. I mean, I could see it was all rational. What of course, you know, this happens, that happens, and this is all terrifying. But they didn't know. They didn't know what I knew. I mean, that's one of the weird uh, responsibilities that an historian has. If you find stuff like that, you have to you have to um, hold it very carefully because at, at the end of this story, there's always there's always somebody else who's who's suffering from it and who didn't have that knowledge. Yes, and they had different mechanisms, I think, including one that you highlight of your dad's, which is stamp collecting to tame geography and fix boundaries, I think, for your lines, and, and how he tried to use that to counter this anxiety of displacement. And maps, too. I think maps is the other one that you brought out. Was You described it as a miracle that his faith in maps kind of survived his youth when when maps were being redrawn. It's funny, I've been, I've just been to Ukraine um, for an exhibition. Uh, I did it three, four years ago in a sort of general way, and now it's more dedicated, well, completely dedicated, this one, to Ukraine, and it's called What Would You Take? And in fact, I think there's a section in the book where I ask, what would you take? So I wanted to know what my father as a child um, and his younger brother took. And so we've been asking people uh, who've been displaced internally Ukraine, but also refugees outside of Ukraine, um, what they took uh, when they had to leave their home. So we've had, you know, it's really a story of how very cherished personal objects of no real value. So, you know, we're excluding, I took the phone and my laptop and all that, and the money and, the, you know, the jewellery. Um, but it's a sort of transactional uh, relationship you have with with something that reminds you of home or, or holds you in, in a particular way into an identity that you're frightened is going to be lost or, or damaged. And um, maps, you know, I had to take the map out. Every time I met somebody from Ukraine or still in Ukraine, I'd take this huge map out and I could hear my father was saying, no, don't fold it that way, you know, because I still can't quite work out how you fold an enormous thing that's as big as the bonnet of a car. And I would say, can you tell me where you were? So you went from Mariupol and then you walked to this village and then you were. And, and I had this really kind of strong sense looking at this map of, 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 uh, of my father, but also of what I learned about maps. I didn't really learn about maps until, until I started this book and got interested in, in, in mapping. How we, you know, how, who decides where a border goes where and how do they map it and what is a map? And then I realized that all maps are kind of fictions and completely uh, unreliable in, in certain levels or layers. And the whole vocabulary of map makers is to do with omission. 
there's things that aren't there. And I started making maps of maps uh, that had on the map hidden valley. And I think, well, how can it be a hidden valley if it's on the map? So I had really lots of fun with that. But I realized also that it was, we don't really use maps anymore. I do. I mean, I'm not very good at it. I still have to turn them round to go right. I can't do the opposite, you know, the, to turn them upside down. But my father only used maps and I'm a stickler for them now because, you know, of course in Ukraine, everyone had their smartphones and then they got no, then they had no signal. And I was the one who'd get the map out and say, well, you know, we're <laughs> going the wrong way. Um, yeah, I like, you know, stamps and maps and um, this, these efforts of your father to create some order in, in this way to, to source kind of a sense of place for him. And I, I wondered how that felt to you. It felt, you know, this childlike way of trying to get structure. I felt incredibly sad, actually, to me. Yeah, very. And I don't think um, in, in that time, in the 40s, 50s, or even 60s, that maybe... Um, well, certainly not his parents would be in any way geared up to understanding what that might have been for him as a child. Um, he, you know, he, he continued all his life to be very, very contained in the way in which I saw once his, he had a great big ledger on his, on his desk because at one point he was working, you know, from home and it was sort of his ledgers. I mean, it was like his accounts. And the the underlining and and uh, the neatness of it all and the thoroughness and yeah and all each those all of those vertical and horizontal lines where it seemed to me it seemed to be a grid by which to live in it was kind of safety I mean in this case it related to money but he would also do lists he'd make lists about everything when before we went to ho on a holiday or when we're going to do this or when we're going to do that. He never ever packed a suitcase without a suitcase, uh, without a list next to the suitcase on the bed, and everything would then be done. And he was a, you know, he was a mountaineer. I mean, that's what he did, really, to escape from himself was to go and sort of dangle off a piece of rope and, you know, on 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 a mountain somewhere, very solitary, um, a place where nobody can, you know, annoy you. And um, I guess to degree a, a sense of danger which maybe brought him out of himself a kind of release actually in some way from himself to be in these huge landscapes and in these very concentrated moments of of challenging climbing um but you know e again even that everything was noted uh, everything was organized in a very particular way all of his equipment that he had to take with him all i remember seeing it all on the floor you know a bit of rope and a bit of you know and pickaxe and Grandpons and all of those things, yeah, and enough. And also, when we went skiing with him, one of the best things we did with him, and the most happy thing, and so grateful, was that he took learned us to he taught us to ski and talk us about the mountains and talked about us uh, to us about how to you know go on the sides where there's no ice and all things that might be obvious to everyone else, but we learned it from him in sort of the old fashioned way, old fashioned way, um, without without being too fast. And stopping somewhere and finding a good place to sit and have, you know, a picnic so he'd pull something out of his rucksack. So there was a lot to admire and to be, you know, gracious for. But, of course, I don't know children. I, I, I regret perhaps that. Being able to say to him, you know, those things mean a lot to me. They did then and they stood, still do now. But he'd take a, he would always take a, a map with him when we were skiing. Not just the ski map, but he'd have a map, a proper map. Because he wanted to know more about what you know the local 
mountains were called and how high they were and all of these things. With respect to your upcoming exhibition, What Would You Take? I wanted to to quote the epigraph of Franz Kafka. It's at the beginning of chapter six and um, Kafka's quote is, do you feel you belong? Do you feel at home? I don't know. I feel most uncertain. My father's house it is, but each object stands cold beside the next as though preoccupied with its own affairs, which I have partly forgotten. And it struck me that your father, who, who said to you, one couldn't love an inanimate object. And now you're asking refugees and internally displaced people what inanimate object you would take with you. Reconcile that for me, Francis. <laughs> well, obviously, I disagree with my father about uh, you can't love an inanimate thing. I think that was probably a way of his parents telling him, you know, each time they had to move, hurry up, hurry up. No, you can't have that. And that was the way it was probably described. Just take the things you really, really like and be useful. And um, so I think he, he learned, I think he learned, don't love an object too much because you're going to lose it. That's more, more likely. Uh, he was very emphatic about it. Um, I, I disagree because I think we put ourselves into the possessions we have in a bad way in the sense that we can then not leave them, leave them behind, and in a good way because you can take something at least that might hold you to a sense of home when you've lost it, might hold you to uh, the, the, the truth of you insofar as you could ever know that and something that will give you hope should you cross the border, should you make the crossing to the other side from the place that you've left the shutter zone, let's say, where you've where you've had to flee for very short notice. So it was, I felt, I think probably we, there were a group of us on this trip, I'm working with a wonderful uh, photographer called Kaupo Kikas, and we had uh, someone who'd help translate and do sort of a fixer and also a documentarian. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I had the privilege of understanding more about this thing about the, you know, what objects would you take, but I definitely had the insight from the work that I've been doing that you know, one tiny thing of no value to anyone else, which seems completely uh, redundant, can be uh, a vehicle to help you move from one place to another and to survive the experience in, in traumatic uh, contexts. Uh, yeah, and I thought it was incredibly brave of people to show us what they'd taken. I mean, someone, someone had taken the deeds of their apartment in Mariupol, which had which didn't exist anymore. I mean, it just and you know, there's no way they can go back. There's nothing to go back. There is no home. But they had this ancient brown document which they took with them. They took a record of their house with them once the house itself had been obliterated. Uh, and others were, were, were moving in, in different ways. And I think it's a question, you know, what would you take is the, is the question really is to the viewer. And I would hope, in a way, in that section that I used in my book, what would you take? It, well, I was asking the reader. And, you know, look around. When I asked myself, it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to decide what 
that object would be? What was most precious to me? And, you know, I don't have a Van Gogh, but it wouldn't have been that. Uh, it turned out to be my old battered uh, all-star shoes, my combat shoes that I've had for probably about 20 years. And in the last 10 years have been so unfunctional, dysfunctional as, as shoes that I've been using them in my allotment, in my garden where I grow fruit and vegetable here in, on the outskirts of London. And I looked at them one day and I thought, but this, this is what I would take. They would be completely impractical for walking, for walking out of a war zone or a flood. But they would remind me of all of these years of, of being in, in, my, in my allotment, in this garden, in this very special place. And it will remind me that all I do here is seed, take seeds, put them into the soil, and then I wait till spring summer and then I I eat them and then I take the seeds out of what I've eaten as well and keep them and I do it and just the sort of fantastic reality of something that that continues actually with or without you that was the thing so what would you do and then I had you know other you know where where, where would you go then we get up to borders and if you look at Ukraine today Ukraina means actually means the word means on the edge the border, borderline, at the limit. It's, it's a shattering, awful example of how, for hundreds and hundreds of years, man-made borders can decide the fate of hundreds of thousands and millions of people about whether or not they can stay, where they're quite happily sharing their tools with local farmers on the other side of the road and suddenly then they're using those same tools to kill each other that's something that's happened there for hundreds and hundreds of years and and that's why i kind of wish there was some kind of situation in which kind of general amnesia could capture everybody for a couple of days and then they wake up and they get these terrible ancestral grievances and um the demand that justice be done once all of these people had been long time you know long time compost in the ground that we're talking about it's terrible it's absolutely terrible and so where to go is an, is, an, is another where would you go we should all ask ourselves we are all we are all possible surrogates for refugees and displaced people yeah it's true Francis, would you, would your dad have read your book? I could never have written it if he was alive. Um, what would he have thought of it had he had you written it, embarked on writing it in his life? This fictional, you know, parallel life that I'm inventing. Do you know? So no one's asked me that, and I've never asked myself that really. I suppose that well, in a way, I have in the sense of oh, I hope I haven't done something that's really a betrayal or or diminished him in some way. He was a very private man. So I think, and I don't think, because he was so private, I don't know any of his secrets. So it's not like I could have exploded any of his secrets. And um, No, I just don't think I could have written, I, I don't think I could have written it while he was alive. And should he some, some, some weird way just walk through the door, you know I'd hide it. I think I, I think I'd like to say oh, hi, 
do you remember me? And to start again, start anew. I would have the I would have the tools now to to not just to deal with him in the way in which I couldn't do when I was younger, but I think I could I could have I think I could have good times. Sort of, I'm I'm not a mountaineer, but I wouldn't mind doing the treks that he did. You know, we don't actually have to kind of climb up a ice wall. I think there are things that I could enjoy much more about him now. I, I also have to accept that if, you know, it, it, it's, I mean, sometimes it's just a bad match and it's, and it's because of these early dislocations and uh, the way in which life is, this was so compromised, if you like. It just was very difficult for him to do anything other than what he did as a father and be, and be as he was. I think probably I would just try and have a completely different relationship with him in this sort of miracle where he does come back. You know, obviously part of the miracle is he doesn't come back as exactly the same person or with, with exactly the same handicaps. He'd have a chance, he would have a chance for himself also to, to live without so much um, pain and also nostalgia. So, yeah, this sense that came down from his parents definitely as well of, of loss, the sickness for home. Nostalgia comes from the Greek word nostos, which is home, and algia for, for pain or sickness. It is a sickness. And quite often it settled, nostalgia quite often settles on the lies and not, not, not anything else. You know, it's a, it's a fiction. Home is also a fiction. We make everything up. We make our homes up. We make our families up. We make our countries up. But in a kind of personal way, you do have some power to shape that. So, yeah, it would be interesting. It would be interesting. But I, 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 I would write a completely different book if it came back now because it wouldn't be the same me, at least. It it's wouldn't be the same me meeting him, you know, yeah. Actually, if I met him, I'd probably thought, he's a kind of interesting guy, quite recessive, a bit like my father. I'll move on, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to someone else. I'm not sure if it was, if I, if I would have the kind of, I would just, I wouldn't be disappointed. I just wouldn't expect much. I'm going to finally ask you, Francis, about a next book, if there's anything in the works. All my friends say, you always say this, and then, you, and, then, and then you change your mind. I say, after every time I've written a book, I'm never doing this again. And I'll tell you why. I, well, firstly, it doesn't pay. Secondly, <laughs> it, it is I am... It, it basically it makes you. I mean, never mind lockdown. When lockdown started, everyone was like, "Oh," and I was like, "I've been doing this for three years on this book. I've been doing. I don't know how many years of my life I've been basically. I don't understand. Am I writing because I'm a recluse, or, or am I reclusive because I'm writing? And I still haven't figured that out. But I <laughs> am enjoying now working collaboratively with other people, also because. Whether or not it's as personal as the book I've just written or the other ones, you know, you do get very lonely. You're kind of mapping a world. And at times, actually, like most things to do with loneliness, it's not when you're really feeling so ghastly. It's actually when you find something and you're ecstatic. You know, you're like, wow, I just, I just found something. And this connects and you can hear it like clicking in your ears. It's, it's like an audio thing. Then you think, oh, you look around, you think, oh, no, it's just me and my four walls. So I think it can be, writing can be fine if you can 
balance it with something else. And because I'm monofocal, I can only do one thing at a time. So I think, no, there's always, I think, I would never say no, but I think I just need to work in collaboration with other people now. And I'm very, and I'm very glad I am with this project. What would you take? Um, dedicated to Ukraine, and that's going to keep me busy for quite a while. And something else will come from that too. So that's where it is. Francis Stoner Saunders, thank you for joining me on the Wandering Book Collector. I've loved it, and you've you've squeezed things out of me that you know I never thought anyone would ask. And I hope it's um, yeah, I I'm really very grateful. You've been you you've given me so much you know to think about. You really have. I might have to go back to the book and rewrite bits. <laughs> My thanks also to the support of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent. Goodbye. <laughs>